Hi, I'm Ashley, and I'm a teacher in Georgia. And I'm Talia, and I'm studying to be a crime scene tech in Colorado. And we're... A teacher in a crime scene tech? Walk into a bar. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. I'm tired. We're night recording today. Night recording. (laughs) Scandalous. Yeah, I'm night recording in my kitchen. (laughs) I'm night recording from my bed. Ooh. So scandalous. Ooh la la. Um, do we really have anything? (laughs) This started Uh, off so awkward. Yeah, why are we so weird? I don't know. Why are we the way we are? We're strange. Um, I actually do have something from last week or last episode. I guess we're off a week. Sorry, guys. We're a wreck. Just, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. It was kind of a long week. Yeah. Uh, We're two mothers doing the best we can, okay? (laughs) We're trying. We're trying our best. Sometimes it's, it's just hard. Anyways, I have something to add from the last episode when I did The Haunting in Georgia, Okay, my dad texted me, and I have talked about it on the show before, that my dad is a TV editor and has long edited a lot of true crime stuff, mystery stuff, uh, which is probably where part of my love from true crime comes from. Mm, probably. But he texted me, yeah, it has to, it, I mean, it has to be, uh, and said, did you do uh, a story about a haunting in Georgia? Mom told me. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, with Mr. Gordy? And I was like, yes. And uh, he was like, I worked on a show about that. And I was like, no, because I've been waiting to cover something on the on our show that he that edited. That on? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I sent him the YouTube link to the uh, documentary, and I was like, please tell me you worked on this. And he was like, yes, that was me. I edited that. Oh, my God. Is his so, name in the credits? Did you go back and look? Yes. Did I send you a screenshot? No. You didn't. I'll send it, I'll send it to you right now. So I'll post the screenshot on our Instagram when this comes out so you guys can see my, my dad's name in lights. The shining star, Uh, the star of the show. Yeah, and he said that the production team um, really did go to the house. Did he go with? No, the editors never get to go anywhere. They just work on the computer. Oh, okay. He was kind of, he was sad about that. (laughs) He was like, no, the editors never get to go. That sucks. And he said that the production team said the house was super creepy and that, um, turkey buzzards would roost in the trees above the house like every single night which is a really gross detail to me that is really gross and really creepy but so ew i wonder why i don't know the presence of death yeah they can smell it so yeah dad if you're listening sorry that i um said that the documentary that i watched was uh cheesy Okay, because you said pro- the produced in- a long time ago. I thought you said just the intro is cheesy, or was that the werewolf? Uh, no, the no, that was Beast of Bray Road. I oh. said this one. I said, uh, I mean, it's kind of cheesy because it was produced like a while ago. Oh, no, <laughs> sorry, I Dad. I, Dad, I didn't mean your. I didn't mean your editing, Dad. So sorry. 
so sorry, Dad. Good thing you didn't say the the editing was specifically. Man, cheesy. you guys should just see the editing on this thing. It is just crapola. It no, is the editing mess. was actually the best part of the whole show. <laughs> well, that is good. We'll have to. I want to find all of the ones that he's edited now. That's so cool. You can look him up on IMDb and see all the shows he's oh my God. worked on. Your dad is famous. <laughs> I know a famous person. <laughs> that is so He's cool. going to roll his eyes so hard when he listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys are so dumb. Yeah, that's okay. All right. Well, yeah. We so. should start selling his autograph. <laughs> Profit off of your father. <laughs> We need to make him a podcast name because my mom is Marg Mama. Oh, yeah. What about Famous Dad? Just kidding. <laughs> Just Famous Dad. What about... He would literally hate that. <laughs> I would not. Posh Schmetterling. Yeah. What? Papa Schmetterling. I said Posh Schmetterling. Oh, Pa. That's cute, too. Oh, what did Jax called him? Peepaw. Oh, yeah. Peepaw. Peepaw Schmetterling. Oh, that's actually really cute. He's going to hate that also. Sorry, Dad. Oh, well. All right. <laughs> you can't make your own nicknames. People have to give it to you. No, and that's what that's we're right. giving. So, Peepaw Schmetterling edited the Haunting in Georgia thing. If you want to go watch it, the link is in the show notes on the last episode. The production value is just chef's kiss, and the editing is straight fire. It's the best part of the whole thing. (laughs) That's right. I have to watch it now. All right. Moving on from that. All right. (laughs) Anyways, should I just jump in then? I don't... I don't have anything else fun to say besides... My child now thinks that I should get married because he wants me (laughs) to leave him alone. And stop talking to him and find somebody else to talk to. You should get married so you have someone else to talk to besides me. It happened while we were grocery (laughs) grocery shopping. I almost said grocery storing. Grocery storing shopping. We were at the grocery store and he was very, very quiet for a few minutes. And I could tell he was thinking about something. And I was like, what are you thinking about? Oh, I'm just deciding on if you should get married or not. I was like, oh. oh. Do I get a say in this? <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah. And he wants me to get married, so I have somebody else to talk to besides him. So. I love this child. He is very six, and I. He almost made me rip all my hair out today, just being a six year old. The most six year old, six year old there ever was. Yes. All right. So mine is extremely heavy. It's a rough one. But. I did it for a reason because I, as you guys know, Ashley and I live on TikTok. I don't know if you've been listening. Have you Have you guys heard about that? Yeah. Have you guys heard that we like TikTok? Do you guys know about the clock app? That's, we live on that. But anyways. It's our home away from home. Yeah. There's this trend that is out and it's disgusting to me. And it's basically mean girls bragging about being mean that trend where it's like well if you think I'm a bitch now you would have hated her and they show a picture of themselves like in high school or whatever oh I haven't seen this trend I have only seen it because there was one who talked about seeing like basically was slut shaming a girl whose video was released 
And then it cut away to another girl. Like, people, you know, this ruins people's lives. Yeah, this is not funny. So that's what this story is about. And I'm going to put a huge, huge, huge trigger warning out that there's a suicide, there is some self-harm, and there is sexual extortion of a minor. So, and I'm I'm trying to tell it in a way that her family would want it told. Like, if I try to think about it, like, from her family standpoint, like, if I was her family, how would I want it told? And I basically only use sources that this victim's mother was in. Okay. So, there's that for you guys. And if any of that is sensitive to you, then this might not be the episode for you. So, Amanda Michelle Todd. Do you remember this story? Amanda Todd? I know the name, but... Yeah, you'll recognize I don't know it. To, I'll... Okay. She's, she's our generation. She was. She's a millennial. She, like... Just look at pictures of her. You'll see, like, oh, my God, she was raised during our era. So... Can I look right now, or will it ruin something? No, it won't. I think I gave everything away in my trigger warning, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Yeah. So, Amanda Michelle Todd, or Princess Snowflake, as her mother would call her, was born 10 days late during a snowstorm in Vancouver, Canada, on November 27, 1996, to parents Carol and Norm. From the beginning, Amanda was a free spirit. Her mother, Carol, who I just fell in love with, she's like the sweetest woman ever. She lovingly called her her pain in the butt child. She was her second child. And Amanda was just like very curious and impulsive. And she was just very out there as a child. In an interview with The Fifth Estate, which is a Canadian news show, which is kind of like Dateline, there's a two-part series about this case that they have. Carol joked that Amanda took great pain to drive her parents crazy as any typical child. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's my kid right now. I feel you. Right. <laughs> Amanda was an active child. She did, did gymnastics. She played hockey. She loved to sing and dance. She had a passion for animals and art, and she loved to help others. She loved Aww. the color purple, not the movie, but the actual color. <laughs> I was like, that that's also a movie title, but it's a color. Yeah. She was, as Ashley and I like to say, super shiny. She was just... She was a bright and shiny. She was. She was very shiny. Her parents ended up splitting up, but it didn't seem like Amanda was too affected by it. She stayed close to both parents, and I think it happened when she was fairly, like, fairly young as a child so I feel like when you're younger she adapted yeah Yeah. when she was six her mom started to realize that she was a little bit different than other children so she took her to the doctor and Amanda was diagnosed with ADD because of her ADD she would say things and the other kids would laugh at what she had to say so she became very quiet and she developed some anxiety this was I mean I feel like Even back in the 90s and early 2000s, mental health wasn't taken as seriously as it is now. Yeah. Something that helped her cope with this anxiety and just being a little different was singing and dancing. She loved to perform, and there's videos of her singing and dancing still up, and she's just, like, the most adorable little nugget. Mm. I know. I love her. Sweet little bright shiny. Yes. In one of them, she's singing High School Musical, and it's so cute. Oh, my God. Yeah. She wanted to one day be famous. When she was in seventh grade, she asked her mom for a webcam. Her mom was like, no, we're not doing that. A child doesn't need a webcam. They argued over it, and Amanda's mom stuck to it. Amanda got really upset, 
So she does what any child does, and she goes and asks the other parent for a webcam. Of course. Her dad, with the intention of giving her an outlet to show off her singing and dancing, with only the best of intentions, buys Amanda a webcam. I want to put it out there, none of what happens from here on out is his fault. At all. No one buys something for their child expecting it to be harmful to them, or that it's going to be bad for them in any way. Sounds like he was just trying to make her happy and yeah he was trying to support her have her have a way to get out there show off her singing and dancing so he buys this camera and amanda is over the moon excited about it her friends remember how during sleepovers they would mess with the webcam and go chatting with strangers i feel like this Ah. is pretty normal back in our day at least the chatting asl i remember asl Oh my god. I know. If my mom knew what I was doing, right. they would go on a website called Blog TV. I had never heard of this website, but it's a lot like early TikTok. Basically, you go live and people can comment while you're live, and other people can join your video and you can go live together. Mm. Amanda's username was Cutie Lover. It's just so like. So preteen. Yeah. It was on Blog TV where Amanda started getting attention from from boys and, unfortunately, men. Yuck. She was 11 years old. <laughs> one day, um, one of these men, and I call him a man loosely because he isn't a man. He's just, he's a perverted piece of shit. And his name, his username is Tyler Boo. And he messaged Amanda and he told her to flash the camera during one of the live videos. She's 11. I'm going to come back to this point that she's 11 a lot. Oh, God. They... This person named Tyler Boo told her that they had all of her information and that if she didn't flash the camera, they would come and find her. So 11-year-old Amanda makes a decision out of fear that would change her life forever. And in a live video session with a few hundred people watching, 11-year-old Amanda flashed her breasts to the camera. Again, 11 years old. Why are you chatting with an 11-year-old? I'm already really sad. The person who originally threatened her then took a screenshot of little child 11-year-old Amanda exposed with her breasts exposed. They then messaged her again and asked and told her if she didn't flash again, the picture would be sent all over Port Coquitlam, where she lived in Canada. She said no. She didn't think this person would actually do anything. I'm, I feel like none of us would. We'd just be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, They're whatever. not going to do anything. How do they, yeah, they don't know where I am, whatever. Yeah, and in her mind, what just had transpired wasn't a big deal. During Christmas break of 2010, the image was shared to a porn site, and then that link was shared with all of Amanda's Facebook friends, which included her mother. So her mother gets it, and she's like, what is this? She was shocked. Holy shit. Yeah. And I love her mom because at no point does she shame her daughter She's Team Amanda all the way. She seems like she gets it. When you're young, you do dumb things that you're going to regret. But in Amanda's... You don't know any better. Exactly. And she just she she just never is like, oh, well, Amanda shouldn't have done that. You know, she's just... She's so... You can tell that her daughter was like... She's understanding. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. She just feels like a comfy person. In Amanda's case, there was a sicko who took advantage of this, being young and not very... I guess I don't want to say not very smart because she was smart being young and just not thinking things all the way through. Yeah, just naive of the world and yeah, 
Some of her friends who had seen the pictures told her parents and the parents went to police. I think this was before Amanda's parents found out about the whole thing, but police were able to track Amanda down and they went to her house for a wellness check. They didn't do much after that. They just made sure she was okay. On Christmas Eve of 2010, Carol received a Facebook message from someone who called themselves Alice McAllister. And this Alice person told her that Amanda was being extorted. I don't really understand the point of this message because it was the same person who originally extorted Amanda, Tyler Boo. I think it was more a way to instill fear into the family. Also, there is a phrase for what's happening, and it's called sextortion. There's a documentary called The Sextortion of Amanda Todd, and it's one of the ones that I watched. It's one of the, like, dateline. It's, um... I forgot what the show is called, but I said it in the beginning. I'll link it. Oh, the Canadian show? Yes, it's like Canadian Dateline, and her mom is very involved on it. So sextortion is, if you don't give me what I want sexually, I'm showing everyone what I do have. It's blackmail, but in a sexual way. Right. And as we will see, it ruins lives. Carol did end up taking the messages to the police, who didn't do much again. Are we really surprised, though? So Amanda returned to school after Christmas break, and by then the picture had been seen by likely almost everyone, if not everyone. And the slut shaming. I can't imagine having to walk into school like that. And she, I'm sure she was blindsided. Because you know, did you ever have like a bad dream when you were a kid that you walk into school without wearing a shirt? I still have those dreams. Yeah, or like I used to have a dream that I didn't wear a bra to school and everybody knew. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like that, but everyone actually saw. Yeah. I can't imagine the embarrassment. She must have just, oh my God. Yeah, it's, and she didn't think that it'd be a big deal. She just. Because she thought she was doing it anonymously, number one, Mm -hmm. to someone that didn't know her. And number two, she thought if she didn't do it, something bad was going to happen. Exactly. So the slut shaming begins. Also, Amanda already got attention from boys. She's a beautiful girl, but now it's amped up. She's getting getting even more attention from boys and the little mean Not girls. Not in a positive way. Yeah, and the little mean girls have something they can use against her now. She thought it would die down, but just for her own sake, she went into hiding and became even more anxious and quiet and just tried to stay very small. Unfortunately, the bullying at the school did not die down, and Amanda ended up switching schools and living primarily with her dad. When she switched, Tyler Boo returned. And this, no, he demanded more content from Amanda, which she declined. She showed these parents these messages to her parents who took them to the RCMP, which is the Canadian police. And it seemed like from what I saw, they did nothing. This is a child. I don't I don't understand why people why they're not taking this serious. This is a child and a predator. Right. Obviously this is Yeah. Also it's like back to the thing of nobody really knew how to handle the fucking internet. Yeah. We know a little bit better now, but even now, still. It's, I just feel like they should have done a lot more than they did. I agree. Amanda's parents advised her to stay off of the sites where Tyler Boo would contact her, but he was everywhere, and as we know, teens and preteens don't like to listen to their parents. 
Yeah. This is a, a very disturbing detail that I learned through this, but there is a just a perv corner of the web where people who call themselves cappers sex sextort girls, young children, like Amanda, and whatever content they get from the extortion, they upload to a capper website where other cappers, a.k.a. perverts, can comment, openly talk about how they blackmail the certain girls, and ask they would ask others to blackmail and extort as well. Just openly Ugh. in the comments. They, the documentary, or the news special that I watched on it, they, sh- they went on the website and they showed some of the comments and it's, it's disgusting how it's just, I don't understand how Blatant. you can just, Ugh. it's like I'm at loss of for words. Wow. The Capper website at one time even had a YouTube channel where they would make a newscast and they would feature new girls and Amanda was one of the featured girls of the week. Which is, it's so unsettling to say the least. Also, can you imagine how helpless her parents felt? God, it would be, you would feel so Because it's completely alone. out of their hands. Yeah. How do you, you can't take that back. And it's you, already on the internet. Yeah. Can't protect it now. Yeah. And when you're that young, you feel like your world is over. You feel like, yeah. I don't know, high school and middle school just felt like the longest time of my life. You know? It feels like it's never going to end. Well, yeah, and... And we felt like that over, like, dumb stuff. Yeah. Your crush looked at you funny or your crush held another girl's hand. Not that your very private business was on the internet. Yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. And she's 11. (laughs) She's a baby. She is. Ten months after Carol and Amanda had first gone to the RCMP, Tyler Boo was back again and demanding sexual videos. This person let her know that they were the same person who made her switch schools and that they would only leave her alone if she gave them three shows. I hate so much. What? Yeah. If she didn't do what they wanted, they would release everything that they did have to her friends and classmates where she went, even if she switched schools again. She ignored him this time, and he would constantly keep messaging her that he was not going to stop until he had his three shows. Amanda saved the conversations, and once again, they went to the police, who told her there wasn't much that they could do for her, and to stay off the internet. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. That's blaming her. Also, maybe the pervert should stay off the internet. I'm saying, like, why is that the end? And why is there nothing you can do? You're not even going to investigate? You're not even going to look into this Mm -mm. piece of crap? Nope. Okay, perfect. A month later, in November of 2011, a fake Facebook account popped up under the name Austin Collins. And this person pretended to be a new student at Amanda's new school. They added all of her friends and a bunch of classmates, 280 people to be exact, and they used the picture of Amanda exposing herself as their profile picture. At her new school? Yes. So now everybody at the new school knows. Yep. They yep. then posted, sent about 280 peeps, enjoy the shit fest. Sent to about 280 peeps. Oh boy. Just wait until you hear about who is behind all this. It, it's just, it's all around disgusting. Amanda posted a message to try to appeal to her classmates by explaining that this person was extorting her and humiliating her 
for not giving them what they wanted. So meanwhile, in Norway, another girl whose identity is protected and unknown to the public was being threatened, this time by a Tyler C. And this person was doing the exact same thing he was doing to Amanda. He, he sextorted her, and when he didn't get what he wanted, he humiliated her by sending nude photos and links to Facebook friends. This family also went to the police, but the Norwegian police took it seriously, and they opened up an investigation. Good. As we should when underage girls are being... Underage... When children children are being targeted by predators. Yes. This is not girl exclusive, too. That's another huge point. I guess with this girl, they had some kind of communication over Skype. Her and Tyler C. Not Tyler Boo. And so police were able to get an IP address through Skype, and they got a hit, which traced the IP address back to the Netherlands. Norwegian police urged Dutch police to open up an investigation, but they did not. So the Norwegian police basically had their hands tied in the matter. They couldn't do an investigation themselves because they were in a different country. It had been about a year since Amanda's photo was taken, and after moving homes and schools... Here it was again, in everyone's face. And Amanda's friends remember that her anxiety had gotten to the point where she started to feel physically ill. She didn't want to be around anyone. I can imagine that. Oh, yeah. She didn't want to be around anyone, and she closed herself in again. She reached out to a friend on Facebook for help and messaged them. You know how many times I've heard nobody likes you or wants you here? Go back to where you came from. Or if you died, I would throw a party. Ever since all this happened, I cry myself to sleep because it hurts no matter what. Please, please, just help me. This is... If you died, I would throw a party. Yeah. That's the saddest... Saddest thing I've ever heard. Mean. Earth-shattering for a... Yeah. Young kid just trying to fit in. Mm Mm-hmm. What sucks about growing up in this day and age, I am so glad I wasn't... I mean, I was a teen during MySpace, but... It wasn't like how it is now. Now you have everything. MySpace, no, not MySpace, Facebook, TikTok, (laughs) Instagram, all of it. So you can't get away from your bullies. No, you can't. And if you do make a mistake, it's on the internet forever. Exactly. I'm so glad that, I mean, I didn't really get on Facebook and all that until I was in high school. Yeah. I can't imagine having access to social media in like middle school no i dumb shit i would have done and put on the internet yeah i had a my how are kids supposed to know how to navigate that when i mean before social media you could go home and escape bullying now it's right you get on your phone and there it is Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, and we can say just stay off but that's not realistic at all especially for a teen girl at all yeah yeah, and that doesn't, again, that doesn't solve, solve the, the problem. root of the problem. At all, which is the pervert pervert in this situation, which is the adult man in this situation. Yep. Or the bullies. Yeah. Amanda did yes. try to bait Tyler Boo to try to confront him face-to-face to show that she was not afraid of him, but he always had an excuse as to why he couldn't meet with her, which... It's probably good that they never met face-to-face. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, I also don't think Amanda expected him to be on the other side of the world. Yeah. So, 
Her depression spirals and she begins cutting herself. She cuts herself so severely that at one point she spent three weeks in the hospital. This, it hurts to even say this, but she attempted suicide by drinking bleach. There's a huge misconception out there that she died by drinking bleach, but she did not. She attempted and survived it. On September 7th, 2012, Amanda posted her now infamous flashcard video. This is the video I feel like everyone in our generation has seen. It's a black and white video of Amanda, and there's music playing in the background, and she's silent, but she holds up flashcards to tell her story. Have you seen those? Yeah, she started that. I'll link the video also in our show notes, or you can find her mom on YouTube. Her username is just Carol Todd, and her picture is a purple snowflake for her purple princess snowflake. She also has videos of Amanda singing and just being like the bright little star that she was. This video now has 14 million views. Wow. Yes. I'm going to read what she wrote on the cards, but her mom in interviews is very adamant that she, that it's important to say that this was not a suicide note like people think it was. It was a way for Amanda to tell her story in an uninterrupted, in a way that she knew a lot of people would see and watch. It's pretty heavy, so I'm just going to put that out there. Hello, I've decided to tell you about my never-ending story. In seventh grade, I would go with my friends on webcam, meet and talk to new people. Then got called stunning, beautiful, perfect, etc. Then wanted me to flash. So I did. One year later, I got a message on Facebook from him. Don't know how he knew me. It said, if you don't put on a show for me, I will show your boobs. He knew my address, school, relatives, family names. Christmas break, knock at my door at 4 a.m. It was the police. It was the police. My photo was sent to everyone. I then got really sick and got anxiety, major depression, and panic disorder. I then moved and got into drugs and alcohol. My anxiety got worse and couldn't go out. A year passed and the guy came back with my new list of friends and school, but made a Facebook page. My boobs were his profile pic. Cried every night, lost all my friends and respect people had for me. Again. Then nobody liked me. Name-calling, judged, I can never get the photo back. It's out there forever. I started cutting, I promised myself never again, didn't have any friends, and I sat at lunch alone. So I moved schools again. Everything was better, and even though I sat alone at lunch in the library every day. After a month later, I started talking to an old guy friend. Went back and forth, texted and he started to say he liked me, led me on. He had a girlfriend. Then he said, come over, my girlfriend is on vacation. So I did, huge mistake. He hooked up with me. I thought he liked me. One week later, I got a text, get out of your school. They were trying to lure her out. His girlfriend and 15 others came, including himself. The girl and two others just said, Look around, nobody likes you in front of my new school. Of, I guess around 50 people saw this happened. A guy then yelled, just punch her already. So she did. 
She threw me to the ground and punched me several times. Kids filmed it. I was all alone and left on the ground. I felt like a joke in this world. I thought nobody deserved this. I was alone. I lied and said it was my fault and my idea. I didn't want him getting hurt. I thought he really liked me, but he just wanted sex. Someone yelled, puncher already. Teachers ran over, but I just went and laid in a ditch and my dad found me. I wanted to die so bad. When he brought me home, I drank bleach. It killed me inside and I thought I was going to actually die. Ambulance came and brought me to the hospital and flushed me. After I got home, all I saw on Facebook, she deserved it. Did you wash the mud out of your hair? I hope she's dead. Nobody cared. I moved away to another city to my mom's, another school. I didn't want to press charges because I wanted to move on. Six months have gone by. People are posting pics of bleach, Clorox, and ditches tagging me. I was doing a lot better, too. They said she should try a different bleach. I hope she dies this time and isn't so stupid. They said I hope she sees this and kills herself. Why do I get this? I messed up, but why follow me? I left your guys' city. I'm constantly crying now. Every day, I think, why am I still here? My anxiety is horrible now. Never went out all, never went out this summer. All from my past. Life's never getting better. Can't go to school, meet, or be with people. Constantly cutting. I'm really depressed. I'm on antidepressants now and counseling, and a month ago this summer, I overdosed. In the hospital for two days. I'm stuck. What's left of me now? Nothing stops. I have nobody. I need someone. And then she closes it with, my name is Amanda Todd. She captioned the video, I'm struggling to stay in this world because everything just touches me so deeply. I'm not doing this for attention. I'm doing this to be an inspiration and to show that I can be strong. I did things to myself to make the pain go away because I'd rather hurt myself than, any, than someone else. Haters are haters, but please don't hate, although I'm sure I'll get them. I hope I can show you guys that everyone has a story and everyone's future will be bright one day. You just gotta pull through. I'm still here, aren't I? This video attracted a lot of attention and Amanda received a bunch of messages and support from other kids who related to her and it seems like things could have turned around. She started to sound hopeful for the future. In response to the outpour of support that she had received, she posted, it's finally nice to see people care. My family and my mom are the ones that are trying to stay strong. I booked November 28th to get my Stay Strong tattoo, like Demi Lovato, on my wrist so I can look at it and stop myself. People now call me crazy, but I'm just going to keep my head up. Love and cheers, Amanda. So she sounds optimistic. She's planning for her future. She, um... She has an event she's looking forward to. She's yeah, got some support in her corner. Less than a month after this post, Amanda ended up completing suicide on October 10th, 2012 in her mother's house. Um, I didn't look into the how. I didn't, I didn't want to look into the details. I didn't want to make, I didn't want to make this about how she ended her life. I just wanted to bring attention to why. I wanted to show who she was instead of the gruesome details of how she ended her life because it's out there, but I just don't think it's respectful. Um, her last I words... Think that's the right move. Huh? 
I said, I think that's the right move. Yeah. The last words to her mother that she was were that she loved her, not to be mad at her, and that she would always be her princess snowflake. Her father ended up getting the Stay Strong tattoo on his arm that was designed for Amanda, and her ashes were mixed in the ink. I think that's so cool <laughs> that they can do that now. Dad. But what a lovely way to honor his daughter. It is, and it's so cute. It's, like, very girly. You can tell that it was designed for a girl, but it's, like, big on mm-hmm. his arm, and he's proud of it. I love that. Yes. Um, Amanda's death angered a lot of people. They wanted answers as to who was behind Tyler Boo. People started to care, and it's so frustrating because it took her dying for people to care. The police were being looked at because they went to them three times, and they didn't help. So, right. I think in a way to cover their ass, they assigned 20 officers to Amanda's case. Online vigilantes had also started to try to find the stalker, Anonymous, who I normally love, got involved. But they basically pinned this on an innocent person. I don't know how innocent they were. I don't know why they thought that they were the one responsible for this. But they did pin it on another grown man saying that he was the one who sextorted her. Also, there were multiple reports on Facebook, which helped connect Tyler Boo, Alice McAllister, and Austin Collins, all as the same person, which I'm sure if they originally looked into it, they would have made that connection yeah, probably, themselves. It probably would have been easy to find. Yeah. Over in Holland, another girl was being targeted, this time by a user who went by Kelsey. You would think that this person would see the damage they had done and stop, but no, because they don't give a shit. They're a piece of shit. I was about to say, obviously, they enjoy this. Yeah. This is, this is how they get off. This is behavior, yeah. Yeah, it's disgusting. And again, this person is asking for shows from this little girl. Uh, and hate it. the girl and her family reported Kelsey to the Dutch police, and the girl was so scared that she went to live in the Netherlands with her father. It took police in Holland six months to follow up. When later asked why they took so long and did not investigate when the Tyler C. tip came in, they said that they had other things to worry about. Other Beautiful. things to Beautiful. worry about. What if it was one of we, your children? We just love that. What if it was one of your children? I'm so itchy right now. Yeah, I can tell. My face is like so red, I bet. <sighs> my blood is boiling. Facebook basically did one of the only good things that they have ever done in history of Facebook <laughs> and basically did the investigation for them. Good. And they found that all three accounts that were harassing Amanda had come from someone in Holland. So now... All right, Holland, what are you going to do? So now we have three different police agencies and three different countries investigating five different users because Amanda had the three. She had Alice, Tyler Boo, and Austin. There was Tyler C. in Norway, and now we have Kelsey in Holland. From the Facebook investigation, police were able to pinpoint that the predator targeted young girl targeting young girls was tapping into the Wi-Fi from a bungalow park in southern Holland, and they did eventually okay. find their guy. The identity of this piece of rotting dog shit was a 36-year-old man. 36. 
What are you, a 36-year-old, doing trying to get sexual content from children? Yeah, and then ruining their lives. Yeah. Get a job. Get a hobby. Do something. Move out of your mom's basement. Oh, I'm sure he was in his mom's basement. His name was Aiden Coban. Coban had 90 different Facebook names. Ew. 86 different accounts, and he sent Amanda more than 700 messages. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. He targeted... Oh, no. He targeted 75 different victims. 34 of them would testify against him later. He was arrested, obviously, and charged with extortion, criminal harassment, possession of child pornography, distribution of child pornography, and internet luring. The trial took a while. His lawyers tried everything they could to try to get it. the charges dismissed. They claimed that police had illegally hacked into his computer and that a good majority of the evidence should be thrown out. Um, excuse me. Cry me a river. He's targeting children. A girl lost her life because of his actions. Sometimes I wonder how defense lawyers sleep at night. I really do. I get it. It's a job. You have to do it. But, like, come on. And I'm... Yeah, that's your client? Yeah. That's... Oh, boy. I wish... And I know this isn't fair, because some people are innocent. But I wish the ones that were not innocent defended themselves. Like, the guy who... Waukesha trial? Yeah. That trial is a hot mess. Hot mess. I'm also sure that his lawyers probably blamed Amanda a lot, and I'm sure there was some slut-shaming going on, and his lawyers asked for a two-year sentence. Two years. Yeah. But that's like a slap in the face. Yeah, and he's just gonna get out and do it again. Yeah, why wouldn't he? The sentence... Two years? Yeah. The sentencing, sentencing trial was actually last month, And Aiden was sentenced to the maximum time, which is only 13 years. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. This is the problem when the laws haven't caught up to the internet. Technology. Yeah. It's... uh, He was being held while he was awaiting his trial, but still 13 years. So he's... So he's going to get time served for that. Mm-mm. He's going to get 13 years. Yeah, but usually if you're uh, held awaiting oh, your trial, that counts towards your sentence. So it won't be 13 years from the time he was sentenced. It'll be 13 years from the time he was arrested. Yeah, he was arrested in... Actually, I don't think I got that. I believe he was arrested in, like, 2012, the same year that she killed herself. No, it was in 2013. So he was arrested in 2013. So he gets... He's already done eight years. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Luckily, Canadian police have learned their lesson, and they now handle online sextortion cases much differently. And because of Amanda, they are taken more seriously. Why were they not at first? Uh, There has also been a lot more research into cyberbullying, and researchers have discovered that cyberbullying affects the brain, actually. And it specifically affects the area associated with pain and memory. Sad. Yes. So, you know, adults saying, it's not that bad. You'll get over it. I mean, children are literally, it's literally wearing on them. It's literally altering their brains. Yeah. Yeah. 
Carol Todd now lives for Amanda's Legacy. She actually runs a nonprofit society called the Amanda Todd Legacy. And on the website, it says that it focuses on awareness and the well-being of individuals of all ages. We have a strong focus on prevention, education, and awareness related to bullying, cyberbullying, online safety, and most importantly, exploitation, sex slash sextortion, as well resources and education encouraging positive encouraging positivity, mental health, and wellness, and digital safety are shared on our website. Carol encourages parents to listen to their children and ask questions and have those deep conversations, even though they might be hard. On October 10th, 2020, Carol was part of a documentary called Dark Cloud. It's on YouTube. It's pretty good. And she teams up with Justin Preston, who I think is just like another just adorable little button of a human being. He was a victim of bullying as well, and her and Justin go around and spread awareness about cyberbullying. Justin was bullied because he's gay, and he runs a campaign called the Rise Against Bullying campaign, and he does this really cool thing that I just think is so, so amazing. He goes and he leaves little crocheted hearts everywhere at, like, parks, schools, wherever he knows that young people will go. And on the art, it says, take me, you found a heart, and it's yours to keep. Aww, that's so sweet. I know. He's gotten some amazing responses to it, and people have tagged him in pictures of the hearts that they have found, and they basically have told him, like, I really needed to see this today, and I needed to remember that I was loved. It's just, like, a nice little reminder for people that find it. I love that. Mm -hmm. Both Carol and Justin's websites are amazing resources for victims of cyberbullying, but they're in Canada, so most of their resources are Canadian resources, just for if we, I don't know if we have Canadian listeners, but there are those. Also, there are multiple suicide helplines now. They've added a text line, and if you need a crisis text line, which I think is kind of cool because you don't always want to talk to someone, the number to text is 741741. It's nice and easy, and they'll connect you to a crisis counselor. Awesome. You need a voice to talk to and listen to and talk back to you. The number for the suicide crisis hotline is 800-723-TALK or 800-723-8255. And I'll add these in the show notes as well. And that is the story of shiny little snowflake Amanda Todd. And I am so sorry that it was that hard, but I feel like, especially with all the social media today, her story needs to be told. I feel like her story could change people to do better and just be nice to people because you don't always know what they're going through. That's right. Yeah. You did a good job. You handled that very gracefully. Thank you. Very proud of you. I tried really hard because I didn't want it to seem like entertainment. Yeah. So. We we usually do a palate cleanser in between stories, but I don't really feel right about that this week. I don't either. I... I think as our palate cleanser, I will just say it costs nothing to be kind to someone. It's free. And you feel better about yourself. Please take care of one another and be kind to each other. Even if it's just telling someone, I like your hair, to somebody that you normally wouldn't talk to. Whatever. That could change somebody's whole day. And online, 
If you don't have something nice to say, please don't Just say anything at all. Shut up. Yeah. Scroll on. There's no need. Like, and in this no case, if, if you see somebody's sexual pictures, intimate pictures that online that they didn't post themselves, report. they don't report. want that there. Report. Report. Don't look at it. Keep going. Scroll on. Yes. Please protect one another. Yeah. It's a weird place out there. It's and the internet is an even weirder place. Oh yeah. Extremely weird. All right. It's my turn. Yes. Talia wants you guys to know that we're recording the next day. Yeah, so we split these up into two different days. Because So if the audio is a little different. That's why. That's why. So I got hosts choice on the wheel of murder and i decided to go with a high profile case which makes me always very nervous because i'm afraid that you schmetterlings are yelling at me that i'm getting the facts wrong or that maybe you guys know it better than me and i don't know and i kind of regretted doing this story once i got into how complicated this story is and how many moving pieces it has but by the time i regretted it i was too far in and it was my second story and there was no turning back. So we're just going to jump in and just do the dang thing. Mm-hmm. I am doing the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. So Natalie Holloway was born October 26, 1986 to Dave and Beth Holloway of Memphis, Tennessee. Dave was an insurance agent and Beth had a career in education. In 1993, when the Holloways divorced, Natalie and her younger brother went to live full-time with their mom. In 2000, Natalie's mom remarried a prominent Alabama businessman named George Twitty, and he was, like, a big deal in northern Alabama. He, um, was very wealthy. And his last name was Twitty. Twitty. It's a very Alabama Conway. (laughs) Twitty. Uh... He, like, was so bougie that he, like, even had a private jet. So. Wow. There's that. So he relocated the family to Mountain Brook, Alabama, which is a bougie suburb of, I want to say Montgomery. I'm going to go with Montgomery. Uh, I didn't write it down, but I it feels right. And Natalie enrolled at Mountain Brook High School. So she had to switch schools. But she quickly became a very popular and prominent student there. She was very smart, involved in school activities, very popular, and had even gotten a full-ride scholarship to the University of Alabama for pre-med. Natalie was another one that we would probably describe as a bright and shiny. She She was just... definitely very shiny. She was. She was outgoing, popular, and I'll say the cliche thing, everyone said her smile lit up a room. It probably did. It, but it did. She had. She was really beautiful. She had a beautiful smile. She was. She seemed very, very uh, friendly and happy. So as graduation approached, Natalie and a group of her friends signed up to go on a trip to Aruba. Ar- I don't know why I said it like that. Aruba. Aruba. <laughs> Aruba. With the graduating class. And Aruba is a small island. It's south of the Dominican Republic. And it's right off the coast of Venezuela. And it's very tropical and beautiful. Um, 124 students went on this trip with only seven adult chaperones. Which is just wild to me. 
I would That's... have a panic attack every single day that I that was is... there. If you were the chaperone? Yes. And if I was a student, probably. That's just a lot. That's 17.7 students per adult. <laughs> That's too many Absolutely high schoolers. Not. That's too many 18-year-olds. No. And since the students were 18 and they had just graduated, they were given way more freedom than your typical school trip. The chaperones would basically just do a daily head count to make sure everybody was accounted for. But other than that, they were loose and whiling out. And because what i was gonna say and enjoying their alcohol correct because the drinking age in aruba is 18 and they had just graduated high school and they were away from their parents and they were living their best lives mm-hmm. um they were all partying pretty heavily apparently there was lots of co-ed room swapping going on in the evenings I mean, it was it was a wild trip. So I wild. Mean, you get a bunch of teens together. There, it's. I mean, we were teens. We were we teens. Were teens. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying they're doing anything that any of us wouldn't have done. All the hormones and I, alcohol. I'm just and... saying that the trip got so wild that the Holiday Inn, where the students were staying, told the school. You, you can't bring any more kids back here. Not next year. No, you're, you're done. They got 86. You are uninvited from the Holiday Inn. <laughs> Natalie was reportedly drinking very heavily. And I don't say this to blame her or victim sh- or shame her or victim blame or anything. It just is part of the facts and it does play into the case. Everyone was drinking heavily. But apparently Natalie seemed to be drinking a little bit more than everybody else. And she was kind of like starting off the mornings drinking like hard liquor cocktails. And she was just letting loose. So the night before they're supposed to travel home, uh, the students all went out for one more night of partying. It's like, let's say goodbye to Aruba. This is like our last hurrah. Natalie was wearing... A very 2005 outfit. She was wearing a denim skirt, a multicolored halter top, and black flip-flops. I feel like I had that exact outfit. Correct. She and her friends went next door to the hotel. Like, right next door was uh, a casino. And at the casino, Natalie drank. She played blackjack. And she was just hanging out with her friends, having a good time. And then she runs into a 17-year-old named Yoan. Yoan Vandersloot. His name doesn't even sound real to me. It sounds like It sounds Dr. like something Seuss. you'd see, yeah, on a kid's show. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to make fun of the Dutch language. He was a Dutch Yoan honor student. Vandersloot. Vandersloot. He's a turd, so we can make fun yeah. of him. He was a Dutch honor student who was studying at an international school in Aruba. And the two are just talking. They seem to be getting along, having a good time, enjoying each other's company. And eventually the group of students that is at the casino decide that they want to head to a nightclub that I think is like right next door to the casino. It's like the hotel, the casino, the nightclub. The group arrive at the nightclub at around 1.30 a.m. They're all hanging out, drinking, having a good time. And eventually Natalie's friends see like from a distance Natalie getting into a silver car with Yoan and two of his friends. His friends were brothers from South America. Their names were 
Deepak, who was 21, Deepak, he was the owner of the vehicle, and Satish, who was 18, their last name is Kalpo, so the Kalpo brothers. The next morning, so they're like, oh, well, there goes Natalie. Bye. Like, nothing, they can't stop it. They just see her get in the car. Too, that would be far, so hard. Too far, too gone. Yeah. And the next morning, the students were gathered at the hotel lobby because they, it's time for them to go home. They need to get to the airport. And Natalie's friends are like, uh, where the frick is Natalie? She's not in the lobby. So they start thinking, okay, well, we were all partying last night. She's, she probably just overslept. Like, maybe she forgot to set her alarm. Let's go, like, wake her up. They get to her room, and they can see that Natalie had packed, mm-hmm. and her passport was out on the table, but Natalie's not there. And that detail to me that she packed is super strange. Were they staying in rooms with roommates, or were they alone in each, like, they each had their own room? I, I did not find that detail anywhere, but it sounds like maybe uh-huh. Natalie had her own room, or maybe... She was rooming with someone else. You know what I mean? Like someone who they, who they weren't friends with. Oh, okay. Because there were so many of them. Yeah. That That is what I would guess, but I don't know for sure. Okay. So her friends then realized that the last time anybody saw her was when they spotted her getting into a car with three men. So they let the teachers know, the chaperones know, and Natalie's mom and stepfather are immediately notified that she's missing and Mr. Twitty gets out his private jet and they immediately fly to Aruba and head to the Holiday Inn and the night manager of the hotel was able to pull up surveillance video of Natalie outside of the hotel and casino and he recognized Yoan with Natalie. He said, yeah, I know that guy. His name's Yoan. He's a local. He lives here. So he told her parents, Yohan's name, and they headed to the police. So they notified the police that their daughter was missing and that the last person she had been seen with was Yohan. Natalie's parents and two police officers head to Yohan's house to question him, which it seems very bizarre that they took the parents, but... That is just a strange thing. Strange strange choice. Mm -hmm. So initially, he's dodging the questions. He's like, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe I saw her last night. Oh, you know what? I did see her last night, but uh, I don't know her name. He's being very evasive and very weird. And next thing you know, his friend Deepak comes into the room and he's like, oh, hey, that's that girl that like we were hanging out with, remember? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he's like, remember, she wanted to go to the beach and like look at the sharks. Yoan's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were hanging out with her at the club. And then she said she wanted to go to the beach to see sharks. So we took her there. But then we took her back to her her hotel room and dropped her off at like 2 a.m. So much is wrong here. All the red flags. None of it You're telling me that you, a 17-year-old boy, don't remember hanging out with this beautiful blonde bombshell last night. You don't remember that? You don't remember that? Your friends do. Your friends do. How many drinks did you have, sir? Yeah. And even, I mean, I was going to say even then you would probably remember, but. Right. So, Yohan also adds that he remembered she fell when she was getting into the car and he tried to help her, but she said no and got up herself and walked off towards the hotel, which that's just a weird detail that he adds to me. Like, I don't understand what the purpose of adding. Adding too much detail is always a bad thing. Yeah, it's like, I'm lying, so I'm gonna, like... And then he adds that that 
as he's driving away after he dropped her off outside of the hotel that he looked back in the rearview mirror and saw a guy in a black shirt that looked like a security guard uniform talking to Natalie. So it's like he's driving away and he's like, oh yeah, look at that guy talking to her. Oh, okay. Bye. (laughs) What? Yeah. What? So obviously there are immediate red flags concerning Yuan. Everywhere. Everywhere. And they need evidence but they need evidence to link him. Like there's no, there's nothing to link him to anything. It's just, he's being really sketchy. So a huge search effort, search and rescue effort for Natalie begins. There were hundreds of volunteer searchers from Aruba and the United States. And the Aruban government even gave their government employees days off to help aid in the search. Wow. 50 Dutch Marines showed up to search the shorelines and they put divers in the water to look for her. Her parents put up a $175,000 reward for her safe return. And then another $50,000 was raised by donations. The search began gathering media attention in the United States and across the world. And it is worth noting that there was some backlash from the public about how much attention the case was getting. And at this point, I thought, should I do this story? Should I continue to give attention to this case? But here I feel like since this case is com- concluded, it's concluded, right? I don't know. For the most part. You'll have to tell me in the end. Are you? Um, but I feel like it's always good to bring back I mean, attention. Her family was giving it attention. Yeah. Well, people were arguing justifiably that if a person of color or Mm. if someone from Aruba themselves had gone missing, an islander, there would not have been been this, yeah, this extreme amount of outrage, this extreme search effort, which is valid. I feel like it kind of goes back to the whole Gabby Petito thing, kind of. Absolutely. It's uh, the missing missing white woman. Missing white women syndrome. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then once I got to this, I was like, uh, I feel conflicted, but it's all right. Next time we will, uh, I do want to make more of an effort, I think, to cover lesser known cases and Mm -hmm. cases for marginalized communities. So yeah, there was some backlash. People were just like, well, why is this one person getting all of this extreme media attention. But part of it was, like you said, her stepfather was very wealthy. Her mom was not letting up. And they were a big driving force behind the media coverage on this case. Six days after Natalie's disappearance, three of the men she was last seen with were arrested under suspicion of murder and kidnapping. So part of the thing that makes this case so incredibly messy is that under a Reuben law, suspicion alone is enough to make an arrest and then the police have a certain amount of time to produce evidence before they have to release the perpetrators so it gets wild it's like you're guilty until proven innocent there Mm -hmm. instead of innocent until proven guilty right so it gets they can just say like "Mm, we think you did it and they can detain you for a certain amount of time and so it gets wild. Like, people are getting arrested left, right, and center in this yeah. case. So the boys, I'm going to call them boys. They were not men. The three boys, 17-year-olds, 18, 21, whatever, their phones were wiretapped, and they were also under constant surveillance prior to the arrest. 
And also two security guards from the hotel were also arrested on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. And I'm assuming that's because Yoan said he saw someone that looked like a security guard approach her. 11 days after Natalie's disappearance, a spokesman for the Aruban Minister of Justice falsely reports to the media that Natalie had been confirmed dead and that the authorities... uh, Why do I keep pronouncing stuff so weird? (laughs) Authorities. Authorities. And that the authorities (laughs) knew where her body was. So, yeah, he like calls a press conference and says yes she's dead we know where her remains are then the next day he comes back and he says uh that's not true that was i was given false information and i had been a victim of a campaign of misinformation Mm, which i don't even know what that means that's a big misinformation right so that's very strange. So that evening, the lead investigator on the case went to the media, which, why? If this is still an active investigation, why is the lead investigator speaking to the media? Mm. Whatever. And he tells the media that one of the suspects had confessed that something bad had happened on the beach and was going to take the police to the scene of the crime. And then the media is like hounding them for answers you know, what is going on, what's happening. And the only thing that the investigators would say is that they were at a very crucial point in the investigation. Okay, super. Thank (laughs) you for the information. Why even say anything? What are we supposed to do with that information? (laughs) Right. Why did you even say anything? Yeah. So on June 17th, a sixth man is arrested in connection to the disappearance. This man was a party boat DJ his name was Steve. I don't know. He was just randomly arrested. And I think it was because one of the boys was like, yeah, well, you should, you should talk to Steve. He's really freaking sketchy. It seems like a very solid investigation happening here. Girl, it is the world's biggest shit show. Also, at this point, Yoan's father is arrested for questioning. And the media is going berserk. It's just like, man arrested, man arrested, man released, man released, no answers. And there was no official word as to why the party boat DJ and Yoan's father were arrested, but they were very soon released. So obviously the police didn't really get anything, but Yoan and the Calpo brothers remain the main suspects in the case at this point, and they're still detained. And the three of them are questioned extensively. And each time they are questioned by the police, their story changes. First, Joan says that the Calpo brothers dropped him and Natalie off at the beach to see the sharks. What? He cla- Do sharks? I'm sorry. Do sharks just like hang out or like? I don't I, know. I'm just I don't know if that's just like a ruse to go to the beach. Okay. Like, is that like come up to my room and listen to my records? Because I have never heard of that. Come to the beach with me and see the sharks. (laughs) I think it's just, like, a thing. They don't just, like, hang out near the shore. So that's where I'm very confused. Maybe they splash around in the water. Maybe you can see their little fins going about. Those are dolphins. Just kidding. I don't know. Sharks. Dunna. Dunna. Yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of, like, a strange detail to me. Maybe if you guys know better, let us know. But I just feel like... If you guys know that if people it was like in Aruba manatees, go shark watching. Like manatees. Sea elephants. Or whales. Sea elephants. 
They are so cute. They are so cute. He says that the Calpo brothers drop him and Natalie off at the beach to watch the sharks. And he claims that he left her there on the beach and that she was fine and that he walked home. Okay. So he's like, peace. See ya. Gotta go. You don't live here. You're all by yourself in the dark, but I'm going to go. But wait. I thought he dropped her off. She fell out of the car and he saw security guard. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Okay. Every time it changes. I was like, is my brain not working right? No, no, no. No, it okay. is. Okay. His brain's not working right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Deepak says that Yoan told him that he was going to walk home and then he received a text 40 minutes later saying that Yoan was home. During the questioning, further questioning, Yoan changes his story again. And says that he actually didn't walk home, but that he was dropped off at his house and that the Calpo brothers drove away with Natalie in the car. Pick a story. The whole thing is an absolute freaking mess. And the police start thinking like, okay, we think that Yoan is changing his story because the Calpo brothers are like pointing the finger at him. Like, dude, we don't know what happened. We it left him been- on the beach. It might have been good that they arrested him just off of suspicion, because he probably would have ran. Probably. I think that's probably part of the reason why they do that. Yeah. It might actually be a good idea now that I think about it. <laughs> well, if you figure out, if once you see how this case plays out, maybe not. Let's. I'm remembering it more and more. People are just getting arrested willy-fucking-nilly, and it yeah. is a shit show. Uh, Plus, so the- there's, like, isn't there, like, two different agencies right now? Like... At this point, it's just the Aruban police okay. investigating. But eventually the FBI and other agencies do get involved. So the police are like, all right, this guy's just changing his story because the Calpo brothers were like, no, we don't know. We left him on the beach with her and we didn't hear anything else. So he's like, no, no, no. They drove away with her in the car. Yeah, it wasn't me. It was those guys. But after a hearing in front of the judge, the Calpo brothers were released because the judge was like, yeah, we have nothing to keep these guys. Get them out of here. But Yoan was still detained. And Natalie's mom is kind of justifiably losing her. She's going off the rails. She's very stressed. She's super upset because her daughter is missing. She's trying to do everything she can to find her. And she does a press conference when the Calpo brothers are released. And she's like, these two suspects were involved in a violent crime against my daughter. And they you guys are letting them walk free. Like, don't let them get away with this. But they had been cleared by the judge. And the citizens of Aruba were like, "Mm, we don't really like that. Like, the judge said they're good. Like, please stop, like, accusing our citizens of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like at that time, the tide of sympathy towards Natalie's family was kind of starting to shift. Like, the Aruban citizens were kind of getting, they were, like, over it. And after two months of searching with no luck, the reward was increased to a million dollars for Natalie's safe return, an additional $100,000 for any information leading to Natalie's remains. So obviously this opens up the floodgates for false tips and the loonies to come out because a million dollars. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And the investigators, they're just running into like dead end after dead end because it's all these false tips. A jogger comes forward and claims that he had seen men burying a blonde girl in the landfill on May 30th. It's two months later. Mm. And you, 
the whole island has been searching for this blonde girl and you're just now and telling now us so but this despite the fact that the landfill had already been searched directly after natalie's disappearance the fbi came out and searched it three more times and utilized cadaver dogs nothing was found eventually the calpo brothers were rearrested on an unrelated cl- crime that happened before natalie's disappearance so it's just a bunch of winners here <laughs> And while they're being held in jail again, investigators continue to question them about what happened to Natalie. But the investigators were not able to gain any new information, and eventually the Calpo brothers were set free. And at this point, Natalie's mom decides to return to the United States and continue pressuring the media to look for her daughter from there. She ramps up the coverage, and it is now taking over the whole world. Like, you could not go anywhere without hearing about this story. I think I was a freshman in high school when this happened. Bless you. I remember seeing the magazine covers and, yeah, like... everywhere. At one point, Natalie's mom was doing up to 12 interviews a day. And that's, she, that's so much. I mean, she was really determined. So, I mean, I'll give her that. She eventually went on the Dr. Phil show. Black. We all know how we feel about Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil, not Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. And not even a doctor. I say that every time I hear it. Doctor. (laughs) Dr. Phil. And the producers had interviewed the Calpo brothers and they cut it all together and the show made it seem like they had hidden camera footage of all three of the boys admitting that they had sex with Natalie. Of course Dr. Phil would do that. Which they showed live to Natalie's mom on TV without briefing her first, which that's just scummy. Yeah. And later the Aruban authorities obtained and released the whole tape, which showed that it had been manipulated by the production team and the Calpo brothers were actually like, no, like, They were denying that they knew if anybody had had sex with Natalie that night. Dr. Phil is such a bad person. I'm... It's horrible. God, he's such a bad person. Yeah, those guys are sketch, and yeah, they're kind of weird, and they can't keep a story straight, but but that is But you can't make something up like that. No. The Calpo brothers eventually sued the Dr. Phil show for slander and defamation of character. I'm not sure if they won their lawsuit or not. Probably the show paid them off, but... Oh, I'm sure. So, Natalie's mom even went with a Fox News team to interview Yoan's father. And it was... I guess this interview was not filmed, but it was just, like, like audio recorded to do, like, an article or something. And... It was reported by Natalie's mom and the news reporter that during the interview, Yoan's father was drenched in sweat and acting super strange. Very, very strangely. And Natalie's mom left the house feeling like he definitely knew more than he was saying about the night in question. Yeah. At this point. Maybe police just made him nervous. Or maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could be, but he was, like, a prominent man on the island, and apparently he was, like, working up to, like, being a judge, and he was, like, used to being, like, in the public eye, so, 
I don't know that doing like a casual interview in his own home would make him that nervous. That's true. But I don't know. You never know. People are weird. So at this point, Yuan has been released from jail and he decided that he needs to start doing his best to clear his name. Cue the massive eye roll. Are you Did shushing he find the- Jesus? Are you shushing the cat? Yes. No, but he start he did not find Jesus, but he starts doing lots and lots and lots of interviews. In March of 2006, he gave an interview to Fox News in which he stated that when he and Natalie got to the beach, Natalie tried to have sex with him, but he said, no, no, thank you, Natalie. Right. Okay. And then Natalie wanted him to stay on the beach with her and, like, hang out, but he said, I have school tomorrow, so, like, I gotta go home. Wow, he's such a responsible 17-year-old boy. Shut up, Yohan. He insisted that Natalie had wanted to stay on the beach alone so he called one of the Calpo brothers to pick him up at 3.30 a.m. She's, she's like, no, go on. I'll be good here by myself with the sharks in the in dark. In a place that I don't know anybody. Yeah, on the beach in the night. So this was contradicting the original story that he told investigators that he had dropped Natalie off at a hotel and then and the security guards approached her. And the other one. <laughs> And all of all of it. So when asked by the interviewer why his story is now different from the one he originally told police, he said that he initially lied to investigators because he was embarrassed that he left Natalie on the beach all alone in the dark. And he figured that she would probably just turn up in the next day or two and it would all be fine. Mm. All right. I'm not buying it, but. Not a good look, bro. The FBI and Aruban authorities continue to search for Natalie for almost a year with no results. And eventually the commissioner of the Aruban police made a statement to the media stating that he believed that Natalie was not murdered, but likely died of a drug and alcohol overdose. And maybe someone hid the body because they were afraid, but there was no proof of this. And the Island had been thoroughly searched. So at this point, 20 investigators go to Yohan's family's house and start searching it from top to bottom. They're like ripping it apart. Mm-hmm. And they even use shovels and metal rods to dig up and search the yard. They did end up seizing Yohan's father's personal computer and day planner, but it doesn't seem that they really found anything because nothing really came out up from that. Then they moved on to the Calpo brothers' home and did the same thing, but nothing was found and nothing was taken during the search. In a last-ditch effort, all three of the boys were arrested again. For this, this time on suspicion of manslaughter. Okay. So before it was kidnapping and murder. Now it's, well, maybe you guys did something to her and she died on accident. They're just trying to get them for something, I feel like. They are. At this point, they're grasping at straws. Correct. And then in December of 2007, the case was officially declared closed due to lack of evidence. Natalie's parents, however, were not ready to give up the search. Her dad, Dave, hired a private investigator named Tim, who headed to Aruba and started his own search. He was searching landfills on the island when he was supposedly approached by a police chief who told him, yeah, you're not going to find anything looking here. You need to look three to five miles out to sea. It stinks. Stinks of a cover-up. It does. 
So Tim keeps researching and he finds out that the night Natalie went missing, a large metal fishing trap was stolen from a local fisherman. This detail was never reported to the media and Tim starts thinking that Natalie could be in this fishing trap. So he starts doing lots of research on water currents in the area and he's able to like pinpoint the most probable location that the trap would have ended up in. And he hires a boat to take him out to sea and they start to take sonar images of the ocean floor. After a few days, Tim finally finds what he believes is a large metal trap and he thinks there may be a human skull in it based on the sonar imagery. So the ocean he, is so scary and that's why. It's so scary. I hate it. I love it and I hate it at the same time. Mm-hmm. He calls Natalie's dad to let him know that maybe we found something. We're going to go down with a dive team the next day to investigate. And unfortunately, this was yet another dead end. And there was nothing in the trap. And Natalie's father runs out of funding and has to stop the search after months of coming up empty handed. Two years after Natalie's disappearance, Yoan went on to publish a book detailing his views of the night in question. I kind of, I hate to say it, but I kind of want to read it, but I don't want to fund that. Right. Man. (laughs) He does admit in the book that he initially lied to investigators and apologizes, but most of the book was detailing how the media frenzy after Natalie's disappearance ruined his life. Oh, okay. Never mind. I don't want to read it anymore. (laughs) This is when it starts to get really weird. In January 2008, so this is three years after Natalie's disappearance, a Dutch crime reporter comes forward and says that he's pretty much solved the case and he's going to debut his findings on a TV special on Dutch TV. And apparently this guy's like a really well-respected Dutch crime reporter. We had two Dutch cases. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, some, when you were talking last night, I kept thinking that too. Yeah. It's weird. Two Dutch bright and shinies. Uh, criminals. Two Dutch criminals, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite. They're very, yeah. they're dull and dark. Dutch dull and dingies. Dull and dingies, yes. And American bright and shinies. Yes. <laughs> so, the reporter claimed that he had hidden camera footage of Yohan making a confession. The reporter was able to get a man named Patrick to de- to befriend Yoan and gain his trust. And apparently they had been friends for like two years. And one night, one day, Patrick picks up Yoan in his car and there's a hidden camera in the dashboard. They start driving around, smoking weed, and Yoan starts talking about the events of the night that Natalie went missing. He tells Patrick that when they got to the beach, him and Natalie had sex. And then afterwards, she started convulsing. He claimed that she was unresponsive, and even though he tried to revive her, he couldn't. He then says that he was scared and called a friend and asked what to do. The friend said for Yoan to go home and that he would take care of the body. He eventually confesses that a close family friend who is not his parents, which I thought was a weird detail to add it. Like, why would you say? Like, yeah, family friend usually doesn't imply parents. Right. But he specifically said, not my parents. Took Natalie on a boat 
and dumped her body in the ocean. He told Patrick that he would never give up the name of the friend that helped him, but that he got lucky that night because he didn't kill Natalie, but her death probably worked out better for him than he could have imagined because he will get, he thinks he will get a large payout from it. And he didn't know that she was wealthy. Oh my God. There's going to be a problem with this though. I already. Of course. This recording. Yep. This footage is presented to the Aruban authorities in attempt to reopen the case and get another arrest warrant, but the judge somehow rules that the tapes are not enough evidence to arrest Yuan because he doesn't actually confess to killing her and he doesn't confess to disposing of her body. Also, I don't think it'd be admissible in court because he didn't know that he was being recorded. I don't know, Reuben Law's wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is a Reuben I forgot. And when Yoan is questioned by investigators again, he stated that when he and Patrick were together, they had been smoking weed, and Patrick had been relentlessly asking what had happened to Natalie, so he just told him what he wanted to hear. But it wasn't true. Okay. And she was definitely alive when I left her on the beach. Okay. But this... Turdburger just keeps running his mouth and he will not just shut up. Just shut up, sir. He gives another interview to Fox News in November of 2008 saying that he has yet another confession to make about Natalie. In this interview, he claims that he sold Natalie into sex trafficking and he was paid for the sale and then later paid to keep quiet about what happened. He claims that the police knew what happened to Natalie, but that they were paid by his father to keep quiet. He even claimed to have a recorded phone call from his father that backed up his claims. But once investigators get a hold of the phone recording, they determined that it was actually Yawan on the phone, just talking in a lower voice, (laughs) pretending to be his fucking dad. This guy, I'm getting a secondhand embarrassment from him he is a sociopath i've watched that documentary uh the disappearance of natalie holloway mm-hmm. and i don't know how i missed every single detail that you're telling me right now. <laughs> i was probably working while i watched it yeah he's like he says something about like that his like the phone recording is like his dad saying like you sold her into sex trafficking. Like, you can't be doing stuff like that, son. Oh, but it's my literally God. just Yoan. Yeah. And then he says, JK, I-, I made all that up. None of that is true. I made all that up and I sold it to the media because I needed money. He. And then I just wrote in all caps, STOP. I think people should just stop paying attention to him. Literally. Quit reinforcing this shit behavior. Yeah, for real. Okay, now I kind of see why. I mean, the the backlash happened before he got all media hungry and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, So. But he doesn't stop. And after dedicating their lives to searching for their daughter, Natalie's parents just keep getting jerked around by this dickweed. Which is what I wrote, word for word. Alright, I was angry at that moment. They go to Aruba multiple times again and search different locations on the island, but nothing ever comes of it. And then on March 29th, 2010, 
So this is five years after Natalie goes missing. Yoan reaches out to mom, to Natalie's mom's lawyer and says he will agree to tell them the location of Natalie's body and how she died if they pay him $250,000. Sorry, I'm looking at pictures of Johan. He's an idiot. He looks like a just big old douche canoe. Yeah, I think he also, I don't know. We'll probably talk about it. Uh, so he contacts Natalie's mom's lawyer and says, yeah, I'll tell you th- where Natalie is and what happened to her if you give me $250,000. And the lawyer's like, no. Fine. Oh. We'll give you a little bit of money now, but you're not getting it all unless we find Natalie's body. So Yoan agrees and they wire him $15,000. And then when they arrive in Aruba, they give him an additional 10000 And Yoan takes the lawyer to the beach and says, all right, this is where it happened. He says that... After they had sex, he picked her up. Like, I, like, what are you doing? Scooping her up? Trying to be yeah. rom- romantic? I, but she w- And she was screaming to be put down. So he threw her to the ground. And when he did, she hit her head on a rock and died instantly. I, this, I, I don't believe anything that comes out of this man's mouth. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Nothing. He then says that he called his father who took Natalie's body to a nearby home and that her father, that his father buried her under the home's foundation. It was all a lie. Oh, none of it was true. (laughs) The home that he indicated wasn't even built at the time of Natalie's disappearance. There was no foundation for her to be put under. Sky. But by the time they figured this out, Yoan has yoinked the $25,000 and skedaddled to Peru. Goodbye. But freaking mess. The legal team knew that Yoan was a little shit and likely to pull something like this. So mm-hmm. they made sure to document everything with the FBI ahead of the money transfer. So now the FBI's looped in on this. And now Yoan is guilty of extortion and wire fraud. And is charged through the U.S. District Court of Northern Alabama. So, we got him on something. Can finally put him in jail for something. It's Mm -hmm. not Natalie's disappearance, but it is enough to hold his slimy little butt in U.S. prison. But, before Interpol could find him and extradite him, five years to the day after Natalie's disappearance, a woman named Stephanie Flores Ramirez... A 21-year-old business student in Lima, Peru, is reported missing. Oh, no. Five years to the day after Natalie goes That is eerie. She was the daughter of a presidential candidate, so this did gain some pretty big attention. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, she met Yoan in a casino. He's back in the casino. And the two of them decided that they were going to go up to Yoan's room to do some coke and hang out. And while Yoan is in the bathroom high on cocaine, he convinces himself that she's an FBI agent or that she's working with the police and that she's trying to spy on him to get info about Natalie's case. Oh my God. He thought that she had been looking at his laptop 
And when he came out of the bathroom, he lost his mind. And three days later, she is found dead in his hotel room. A hotel room that he booked in his own name. This guy. I have no words. So he stole money out of Stephanie's belongings that she had just won at the casino and fled to Chile. It's, it's terrible, terrible, terrible what happened to her. But it's probably worked that she was an influential person's daughter because otherwise nobody would have cared. Right. It's a mess. The whole thing is a mess. Yeah. So eventually he's apprehended in Chile and extradited to Peru to face charges. And the Peruvian government is pissed. Oh, yeah. And on January 11th, 2012, Johan Vandersloot pled guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez and was sentenced to 28 years in jail. And the Peruvian government does not fuck around. He's not getting out early on good behavior. He is serving all 28 of those years. Yeah. It was then decided that after he serves his time in Peru, he will be extradited to the United States to face his trial for extortion and wire fraud. So he's likely going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Correct. Good for him. (gasps) Unfortunately, Natalie's remains are still missing to this day. Though Yoan did try to use them as a bargaining chip to reduce his sentence in Peru, and the Peruvian government was like, we're only concerned with crimes that happened on Peruvian soil. Goodbye. We're not going to talk about all that. They just, part of his sentence should be like, you're never allowed to talk again. L- literally. For you your have a life. muzzle. Yeah. Put a muzzle on that person. Not despicable human being. So slimy and gross. So, yeah, Natalie is still missing. Beth Holloway went on to found the International Safe Travels Foundation, which provides resources and education for the public to help international travelers travel safely. She also funded the Natalie Holloway Resource Center, which provides services to the families of missing people. Vander Sloot is still in Peruvian prison and will remain there until 2038 when he will be sent to the United States to face his trial for extortion and wire fraud. And that is where the case is. Unfortunately, uh, Natalie's family still has no closure. That sucks. They never received justice for her. And what, okay, what do you think happened? And then I'm going to tell you what I'm pretty convinced happened. Okay, so first, when I Googled him, he got a woman pregnant during a visit in prison, so. Yes, so he um, actually was able to get married in Peruvian prison and father a child. He's also been stabbed multiple times in prison because the Peruvian citizens are very angry that he is a foreigner who murdered one of their own. That's understandable. Sucks to suck. I don't know. Um. Okay, so what I think happened was they might have done some drugs here and there all together, um, kind of like how he flew off the handle on um, the second woman. What was her name? Stephanie. How he threw off, flew off the handle with Stephanie. I think that might have happened, and cocaine makes you look very angry. So I think that that could have transpired. Transpired. She could have OD'd, and he didn't want to tell anybody. 
So he made this, he just kept making shit up and hit, he hit her body. I think it, it definitely involved drugs in some kind of way. I think you're right. One detail that I forgot to mention that makes my theory uh, very plausible was that um, there had been a few tip-offs from like the casino managers and stuff that they knew Yoan because he had been accused of putting date rape drugs <gasps> in girls' drinks. Oh my god, what a disgusting human being. So I think There's, he yeah. drugged Natalie, was able to get her in the car didn't realize how much she had been drinking for days. And I think his story that he told the Dutch reporter is true. I think they had sex, they were hanging out on the beach, and I think she overdosed. I think it might not have been consensual sex. I would, yes, probably. It could also be the other way around. She Maybe she overdosed and then... Yeah. And then I'm pretty sure that his family friend that he called to hide the body was his dad oh yeah um, i would I, I don't really think the twins are involved i don't think they were either i think they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time they were slimy people too yeah but, oh yeah i'm not taking away that they are not but great i don't people. think they had any, they i don't believe we're on because the beach. right from the beginning they were like i don't know it was him it was him like yeah we weren't on the beach we dropped them yeah. off at the beach we left so I think that that happened. They dropped him off with her. They probably knew she was drugged or whatever, drunk and drugged. Mm-hmm. They probably played a hand in that. And uh, I, yeah, I think Yoan did leave the beach. And I'm fairly certain that his father took Natalie out to sea. And um, Yoan's dad actually did die of a heart attack in 2010. So we'll actually never know. And he probably died of a heart attack from his son's bullshit what an upsetting case that is oh i also have one more weird fact about this case well two more uh beth holloway twitty whatever her new name is uh (laughs) she actually sued oxygen because they made a documentary about natalie's uh, disappearance and they actually like collected dna from her and made it seem like they had found remains to test her dna against and it was like all falsified for tv that's the one that i watched so they yet again gave the family false hope that they had found natalie uh so she sued them for like 35 million dollars i'm not sure if she won but i kind of hope she did i hope she did too and then the weirdest thing not the weirdest thing because this whole case is freaking weird but beth went on to divorce her husband, her second husband, and for a while was dating none other than John Ramsey. Whoa. Weird, weird. right? I guess they were bonding over their... Trauma bonding? Yeah, over their daughters. That is so strange. Weird. How did did they even meet? I don't know. Weird, like, true crime small world, right? That is weird. Isn't that, that, like, skeeved me out, kind of. It's just so strange. Yeah, it's really weird, but I don't know. So, that's the whirlwind, nightmare, botched case of bright, shiny Natalie Holloway. What a mess. An absolute mess. So we have given you guys almost a two-hour show, so we're just going to go ahead and go right into spinning the wheel and then say yeah. goodbye. <laughs> we're going to let you guys Do you go. want to spin or do you want me to spin? Oh, I can. It's a race against the clock. Little chunky babies waking up. Spinning for you? 
for you first for me. and then me. For me. Okay. True crime. I'll do something Our- lighter. Okay. I'll I'll do a goofy crime. It'll it'll be it'll be great. Okay. All right. Spinning for Talia. Host choice. Oh, host choice. All right. All right. I'll take it. Sounds good. All right, guys. Thanks so, for sticking with us this week. It was kind of a heavy one. Yeah. We love you guys, and just remember to be nice to each other, and... Please be nice to each other. Be nice to yourself. And remember, it's not illegal to be weird. But murder is So please don't do it. Don't. Please. Bye! (laughs) Bye! (gasps) Podcast.